Welcome to the Rheumatology Republic podcast. I'm Felicity Nelson. Today I'm speaking with Dr. Bethann Richards, who was appointed as Australia's first ever Chief Medical Wellness Officer in February last year. Dr. Richards is the head of the Department of Rheumatology at Royal Prince Alfred Hospital. Hi, Dr. Richards. Thanks for coming on the show. Hi, Felicity. Thanks for having me. So when you were appointed to this position of Wellness Officer, what was the Sydney Local Health District hoping to achieve? I think the, the main idea behind the role was um, that we recognised there was a real public health issue of physician burnout. Um, and we'd learnt from some of our pilot programs um, in the preceding years and from some work that had been done, particularly over in Stanford and the United States, about how to address this. And so the Chief Medical Wellness Officer role was really the district, um, not only symbolically, but practically sending a a message to say that staff wellbeing is really important and we're taking this seriously. um, And we're gonna put in a structure to have an organizational strategy to address this. And why were you selected for this position? I, um, my background was as a training director. So um, I worked with uh, the medical registrar workforce, so the basic physician trainees, and used to look after about 60 of them every year who um, were at a point of their careers, which was probably one of the most stressful, um, where they're undertaking sort of very high stakes exams. They've got a high level of responsibility, um, looking after the hospital at night and what we saw or my team and I saw was, you know, increasing levels of distress that was happening year after year. Um, and, you know, we were spending a lot of our time on, on trying to understand this. We were um, spending a lot of time on debriefing and counselling trainees and, and finding that we were having to refer, you know, a high proportion off for, for external help. And so we recognised there was a real issue, um, you know, despite having a great training program and mentor programs in place. So we spent a time trying to understand this. And um, in New South Wales at that time, we actually had um, a spate of trainee suicides. Tragically, we lost three trainees in a period of three months. And that really, you know, sent a shiver, I think, down everyone's spines and as a bit of a, I guess, a grief response and a real yearning to want to create some positivity out of such tragedy, we came up and pitched the idea for a wellbeing program. And what have been some of the goals that you've had that you've managed to act on in that time, in that position? So we've had a few examples of, you know, I guess, um, cultural successes um, for things that, you know, you'd expect were should be occurring on a day-to-day basis. So, for example, we went back to um, the hierarchy, Maslow's hierarchy of basic needs. So we looked at sort of food, water, shelter, fatigue management. First thing we found is that doctors, for example, because of a whole lot of system pressures, never have time for lunch, don't have access to lunch options, and if they try and take lunch, are constantly interrupted. So one of the first initiatives we did on a system basis was to introduce um, what was sort of unheard of at the time, which was a protected low activity lunch break. So essentially what that was is a period of time of an hour in the day where um, 
doctors would only be interrupted for urgent calls. Um, and um, this required, you know, communication with the nurses and the senior medical staff not to ward around during that time. And really uh, one of the best you know, positives that came out from the feedback from the junior staff was actually about feeling valued that someone cared enough to ask them and to make sure that they were having their lunch. So really basic things like the protected lunch break. And now that initiative has been rolled out across other hospitals in New South Wales, Westmead Hospital um, implemented it at the, at the end of last year. Maybe one of the sort of examples of, of, of basic, you know, initiative to address well-being. We did the same for hydration access. So we found out that our, you know, staff didn't have access to, to water fountains. And so they've been installed across the district. Um, we've had limited access in terms of fatigue management to on-call rooms. And we found that the quality of the on-call rooms was really substandard. And so we've had, you know, working with our, our junior doctors and our senior doctors and administration, a whole project around addressing um, the quality and number of on-call rooms. Um, we know, you know, fatigue doctors are at higher risk of having motor vehicle accidents on the way home. Um, burnout uh, and fatigue is associated with higher risk of, you know, medical errors and, and, and reduced patient care. So that, there's a whole lot of um, reasons that it's really important that we have our medical workforce, you know, as, as fit and healthy, both physically and mentally as possible. So these are, I guess, some of the initiatives. Um, the other big thing that we found from talking to everyone was really interesting around how isolated um, everyone felt from each other. So um, what we found is with medicine, we've known it's quite hierarchical, but the departmental structure or the specialty structure, everyone feels uh, and has become very isolated from one another. And, you know, this has been a consequence over time as things like the staff lounges were taken out of hospitals and um, people have had less you know, time with fractionated appointments or not being, you know, working at the one venue, to have those corridor conversations, those supportive conversations to, to you know, bump into one another and, you know, debrief and talk about, you know, difficult patient cases. So what we've tried to do is to build um, opportunities for connection um, as, a, as a really powerful burnout strategy. Um, and that's happened through a whole variety of um, either social engagements pre-COVID, post-COVID that's become much more difficult and we've had to do it in a virtual um, sort of environment. But it's led to things like, you know, the staff choir for the musicians out there, um, for, for people being able to come together and sing once a week, for the artists that uh, like to paint, we've had Art of Medicine nights. For, you know, the Division of Medicine and, and Surgery, we've had social drinks where people could come together. Um, so we, we've tried to create lots of opportunities um, to improve social connection and, and peer support for one another, in addition to the mentoring programs. Um, wow, that sounds, you know, so obvious, but it's at the same time so incredibly important to have those kinds of programs um, available. So that's, yeah, fantastic. And how is your... How has this role evolved during COVID? I can imagine it's all become quite a bit harder. We've had to be quite agile, I guess, in our approach. And certainly at the beginning of COVID, um, 
one of the things we found um, really as the most pressing issue was around staff anxiety about having access to information, what the plan was going to be, you know, concerns, for example, around, you know, access to PPE, would they be safe? How is the hospital going to um, address um, managing COVID patients? Would rheumatologists, for example, who hadn't had a lot of experience with respiratory, you know, acute illnesses be suddenly asked to be managing these patients. So this created a huge amount of anxiety. And so one of the things that we did um, with our MDOK program, which is our, the name for our wellbeing program, was to set up weekly Zoom um, COVID education sessions for staff um, that really communicated all this information and provided some you know, professional development and at the same time a chance to express concerns for people to connect with one another but to find out what was going on. And so that was probably one of the most important early on strategies um, that, we, that we put into place. We then recognised that fatigue management was going to be a really big issue um, as COVID changed from being sort of an acute problem to what we see now as a really chronic marathon type problem. Um, and certainly with resources being diverted away from you know, our hospital to the community to, to contact trace and to do the, the really wonderful job that's been happening in New South Wales at the moment. It certainly um, left a, a burden in terms of chronic disease management. And if we look at rheumatology patients, for example, we were suddenly put into a place as, as rheumatologists with not being able to deliver or see patients in the same way. Um, and so we've, you know, moved to a telehealth environment, but that, um, you know, has its limitations, certainly in terms of examining patients or who, patients that are particularly unwell. And so I think the, the middle part of COVID put a lot of um, stresses on people in terms of having to learn new technology um, that they perhaps weren't used to. They weren't able to manage their patients. There were a lot of you know, questions regarding how rheumatology patients would um, handle COVID with the medications that we use. So again, a lot of education was done in that space across the, the district to try and address that. And what have you got out of being in this role personally? This role has looked, helped me personally on many levels. I think um, firstly, I think there's been a huge job satisfaction um, with undertaking a role that I, you know, feel in my heart of hearts is incredibly important and have seen the, the devastation firsthand when it, when it goes wrong. And I think to feel like you've started a really important conversation and have, you know, put the bones and a structure in place to make sure that a really important issue of, of burnout, anxiety, depression, suicide in, in medical colleagues is being addressed. I think that that personally gives me immense job satisfaction. Um, and I guess to, to, to feel like you're making a difference to, to colleagues that I know are suffering um, from, from many, many conversations. Um, I think Personally, I've also recognised I've got a new self-awareness how terrible my own self-care was and, and certainly 
you know, in trying to champion this, um, I have learned how to do that much better myself and the, the practicalities of that. I think it's one thing to give advice, you know, sleep well, eat well, um, exercise, do all the things that we know we should be doing, but how to practically do that in the lives that we live as busy sort of medical officers. I think that's been a whole new knowledge and, and learning and that's certainly something you know I, I'm doing um, much better than when I took on this role um, you know for example learning the importance of of scheduling time off of taking your holidays and not saving them up um, of having a GP of, of scheduling exercise so for me if I don't schedule it it doesn't happen it's a practical type thing um, of turning off notifications on my phone. So all these sort of little tricks that, um, you know, essentially in an overly connected world have, have made, made you never, ever able to turn off. And when you've got a really busy, stressful job and then you never turn off when you come home, that's a real recipe for disaster. So I've certainly been, been getting better at, at putting in strategies to ensure I, I transition home from work better that I'm able to turn off um, and that I actually prioritizing and allowing myself and being okay with with taking you know a break or time for myself and and not feeling guilty about it and that's certainly been a journey yeah well I guess if you can't do that for yourself it's hard to preach it for other people and one last question, have other local health districts followed this example and appointed a wellness officer? So we've, I've been working um, with some health districts interstate and so very pleased to say um, in Queensland at Metro North Hospital, they've just appointed their first chief wellness officer. Um, and we've been in conversations with some Melbourne hospitals at the moment presenting our model and how it works um, and they're just looking at the business case um, for starting the same same role so it's it's taking off slowly um, and there seems to be you know some momentum now and I think people are starting to really understand the importance um, of addressing what is you know another really significant public health issue um, when you know your most important asset which is your staff is you know half of them or at least half of them are suffering from a, a significant issue of burnout that that ultimately affects patient care oh that's really good to hear that others are like following your example um it's you know as you were saying it's, it's not just sort of a few tweaks you really have to sort of structurally change everything and the work environment in a physical way and a psychological way in order to make it safer for people to go to work so it's it's great that someone from rheumatology is taking up that challenge um so thank you so much for coming on the show and, and telling us about what you've been up to it sounds um like it, it's really important and super interesting to see how you're evolving in that role pleasure thank you for listening You've been listening to the Rheumatology Republic podcast. You can see more from us at rheuma.com.au. Thanks for listening.